The Bonfires of Social Enterprise with Detroit-based Rami Gingrass of Gingrass Global. Welcome to this episode on the LA Kitchen. Many of you already know my friend and colleague, Cecily Jackson Zapata, from some of the other episodes around the Los Angeles area. As you listen in, you'll hear a sort of echo during our interview. This is because we jumped down to the brand new lower level to do the interview. The place was buzzing with people cooking, teaching, learning, observing. It was the grand opening, actually. And it was the quietest place we could find in this busy, bustling kitchen. The new lower level was days away from turning into the new massive prep kitchen. So this is why you'll hear it echo on this episode. I suspect this lower level will be packed with people the next time we see them. So here we go. We're here today with Robert Egger and Cecily Jackson Zapata of the LA Kitchen. Robert, why don't you tell us about LA Kitchen? Well, LA Kitchen, man, it's not so much a place as a, a state of mind, man. It's a revolution. It's it's the idea of how to use food to fuel an independence movement, give people jobs, opportunity. How do you invite the entire community in to be part of it? You know, how do you push the boundaries? on what's a good meal. I mean, there's just no ends to the experiments we're gonna undertake here you know, every single day. But at its core, it's a, a, a program where we recycle food that would've been thrown away. We throw away about 40% of all the food we produce in America, but half of that's fruits and vegetables. I opened up LA Kitchen here primarily because you have access to the most unlimited supply of fresh fruits and vegetables in the world. Secondly, Los Angeles is the home to the largest concentration of older people living in poverty. And I'm really wildly aware of that generation coming and the needs they're going to have as you have millions of people getting old who don't have enough money in the bank. Uh, But it's a place where you can do great business. I mean, you know, I'm here to really launch more of a social business than a charity. Um, But again, the goal at the very end of the day is to take food that would have thrown away, people that are undervalued, put them together and create beautiful meals and great employees all at the same time. So are you looking to hire this older generation or is that are they going to be some of the beneficiaries of the food product? It's a little bit of each. I mean, you know, what we do is we have a job training program. So older men and women coming home from prison, younger men and women aging out of foster care are men and women. They're, those are the people we train. Now statistically, as you probably know, those younger men and women coming out of foster care are statistically, tragically, on the road to the street or prison. So what's interesting about this experiment is it's an intergenerational model. Can older men and women literally help younger men and women not make the same mistakes they did? So it's a very interesting social experiment. So while people are learning, they're, they're teaching each other. Mm-hmm. But we also will be a major employer. And I think that younger men and women won't be as hard to find jobs for, but older men and women, as well as older men and women home from prison, you get the double whammy. So we, we anticipate being a major employer of older men and women. When I say that, 45 to 60. But that's, that's purposeful. I mean, A, that's where, the, that's where the need is, but it's also we're trying to challenge assumptions about aging and ageism in America, saying, in effect, look, if we can hire older people, if we can hire men and women home from prison, if we can pay a good wage, develop a superior product, make money, then maybe it's time for America to reexamine the way it looks at its amazing resources, and in particular the people right outside their front door. Staying with um, this people group for a minute, I heard you say earlier there's a there's a big population here versus the whole U.S., right? An aging population here. One of the things, I've become very fixated since about 2002 when I did a speech for Meals on Wheels and was told there was a waiting list in most American cities. And I knew from my demographic studies that the first baby boomers weren't going to turn 60 until the stroke of midnight 2006, New Year's Eve. And it's like, wow, there's a waiting list now and there's 80 million baby boomers coming and baby boomers have been raised to consume and not save money. 
you know, so I really, alarm bells went off. And that's literally, if you get down to it almost 10 years ago, I started thinking about what we inaugurated today. The idea of a, of a program that would be there ready, not wait till it happened, but marching out to meet the future. Uh, which I think is the mark of a real entrepreneur, if I may be so bold. It's like some people wait for it to come to them. Others say, no, 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 I'm going to go out right now and make something happen. So I chose L.A. because it's the largest concentration of older people living in poverty in America. 1.25 million over 65. About 450,000 of those men and women live below the poverty level. 30% rely exclusively on Social Security. But that's the generation that's over 65 now. They're the ones who, for all intents and purposes, a prideful generation, not prone to ask for help, very resistant to debt, didn't like credit cards, didn't like debt, paid scrupulously worked to pay off their debts. What's coming around the bend is another generation of people who aren't going to have that extra money in the bank for the 10-year science is going to give them. So using LA as kind of a beacon in a way, to, the LA Kitchen is designed to be an open source fountain of, of experiments and knowledge that we will share on how do you engage older people, employ older people, provide better nourishment for older people, um, strengthen. A big part of what interests me is if you think about the aging and you start to really start to get into probability and what's coming, but why wait? Why don't we go out right now, partner with scientists and academics to say, look, we've got all kinds of food. Let's experiment right now. Uh, how can food be part of a new medical regime or how can food become a medical regime? You know, see what I'm after? So the last thing we are is just saying, I'm here to feed the poor. No, I'm here fundamentally to strengthen people, to include people, to employ people, and to challenge in a, in a really positive, inclusive way, Angelinos to look at its elders as an amazing resource. I would say you're also challenging the fundamental ways that Angelinos and people all over the country and the world approach business and think about the ways that we can use business to actually improve conditions for people who we often consider to be drains on society, but they're actually resources and assets. I mean, if you look at everything we've done, we've, we've taken virtually every aspect are things that our society either undervalues or throws away. Food, old people, young men and women out of foster care, older men and women home from prison. Again, things that are viewed as part of the problem. And what we say is, no, 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 here, they're part of the solution. So in a way, we're fundamentally trying to excite people about this dynamic new model, but at the same time invite them in to see something really, really cool, which is, I like to call it economic Buddhism. You know, it's not .com, it's not .org, it's this beautiful middle path that takes the best of both. You know, right now we live in this sadly bifurcated economy where we think .coms drive the economy while .org's charity do good deeds. And what I think Cecil and I and many other people who really are adherents of social enterprise realize that the real future is this glorious hybrid of both. Yeah, I call it a remix. It's this beautiful mixing and collaboration that really takes the best of both worlds when done well. I mean, when done poorly, it can, it can take the worst of two worlds, but... Well, we'll think about but, this, though. You know, one of the things we're saying is to the mayor, City Hall, hey, look, man, you're, you're currently spending over $10 million on contracts for senior meals. And the company you, you partner with, not bad, but the point is their model is they sell you processed meals and they export profit. What social entrepreneurs like LA Kitchen come along and say is, hey, wait, 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 time out. We want that contract, but we'll use it to buy food that farmers, local farmers will put in their pockets for food they used to throw away just because it's got a, a bruise on it. We'll employ people and keep them out of prison and pay them a good wage. We'll provide a healthier meal, you know, and a scratch cooked meal for competitive price and any profit we make, we'll reinvest in the community over and over and over and it'll never leave town. 
So we're also, and I think this is the difference between a social entrepreneur and a salesperson. LA Kitchen's a great business, and I'll talk about it all day long, but at the end of the day, what I'm really selling is social enterprise. This is, a, is an economic revolution that every mayor in America should look at and say, whoa, 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 let me hear more about this. This is a business that doesn't take profit out of my town. How can I help grow more of these? That's right. part of our mission, is to be a real standard bearer for social enterprise. Most exciting. Every mayor in America, all they want to do is create jobs and to provide those opportunities and bring more people mm -hmm. to their cities to make them more robust. And social enterprise is a natural fit for that because you just have the win, 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 win. You've got the jobs, you've got local economies, you've got people who are staying and communities that are becoming more vibrant as a result of social entrepreneurship. You know, one of the great things about Los Angeles is it's, I mean, it's a huge amount of privately owned businesses who will employ men and women who might not have the best backgrounds. But that being said, we anticipate being a major employer ourselves. You know, our goal is over the next five years to create about $35 million in new wages via the graduates who go through our program and either work in jobs throughout Los Angeles or work for our social business, Strong Food. We hope to employ about 150 people. We're already ahead of the curve on the minimum wage increase. We're starting people at $13 an hour with benefits and we'll be at $15 well before the city mandates it. Uh, but again, our goal is to be, have about 150 people on the payroll and it'll be a wide variety, primarily kitchen jobs, but also delivery people and a variety of other things. But at, at its core, the kitchen takes the best of some of the best businesses around. When you look around LA, you have Homeboy Industries, you know, one of the better social enterprises. You have the Food Bank, you have Meals on Wheels. We just take a little of each of them and put them into one super cool business. So again, the idea is to be not only a major employer, but more importantly, a major influence on the way people think. And in particular, as Cecily mentioned, a new generation of mayors who are really have to look harder at the idea of how do I keep money local and how do I keep those 100 million young people who've been raised doing service for whom Philanthropy is how they spend their money every day, how they live their life, how they make their money, not the check they write at the right. end of the year. And so again, social enterprise, that's the ticket. This strong food component of the LA Kitchen is really the for-profit element because LA Kitchen as its parent is a non-profit, is that right? So strong food is the for-profit part of it. How is that structure going to work? Well, you know, years ago, I started the D.C. Central Kitchen 25 years ago. And they just had their 100th graduation. But that was a charity that in 1996 developed its own social business, Fresh Start Catering. And now it generates about 60% of the income for the D.C. Central Kitchen. L.A. Kitchen is going to kind of reverse that. I think what we're starting out with is even though, to your, your point, we are L.A. Kitchen, a nonprofit. But strong food, our social business, is really what's going to drive this organization. What's important to know about the nonprofit sector is the real explosion. You know, we went from about 65,000 traditional nonprofits in America on the march towards 1.3, where we're at today. It really happened in the early 70s and 80s when a whole generation of women, because they had to work or wanted to work, came out into the workforce. And we're literally told, well, you've been a housewife or a mom for 10 years, 15 years, but you don't have any skills. You can go do charity. And so this generation, this first generation of charities were, to a certain extent, hamstrung. So they had a huge amount of, of gender-based rules foisted upon them. And so the way we're governed, the way we're funded, is, is extremely, in my opinion, bound up in economic sexism. You don't deserve access to money. You don't deserve credit. You can't manage debt. And, so, and you can't be involved politically either. So what you have is a generation of nonprofits who would love to have retirement accounts, but they were never given even remotely the economic ability to create that kind of infrastructure. 
So I went through a real phase of, of castigating and kind of, you know, making all kinds of noise about the sector's pitfalls until I really stopped and realized that we've been bound up in this really horrid kind of economic sexism that, that creates dot-com businesses, the mail culture is driving the economy while dot-org charities just do nice things. And what I think Cecil and I believe in is that you cannot make profit in America without nonprofits in America. There is not a town in America, or not a mayor that can expect to attract business, ask young people to stay and, and live there if they don't have arts and culture, communities of faith, education, healthcare, clean air and water. We provide the very foundation upon which all profit in America is made, make no mistake. So I think what many of us want to do through these kind of actions at LA Kitchen is start to push back a little bit with living, breathing, dynamic examples of something that says, you know, charity, ha, huh, you know, this is capitalism 2.0 and we're here to kick your ass. <laughs> That's good. This is going to be fun to watch as you challenge the masses here. But you know, it's done in a loving way. I mean, make no mistake, you can tell I'm provocative. I like pushing, but this is a Trojan horse. It's you know the Greeks wanted in, into the into the you know through the walls of Chari you know of, of, of Troy all so bad they could spit, but it wasn't until they got the Trojans to open the gates themselves, and that's what the LA Kitchen and many social enterprises do, is we deliver deep inside of us a very powerful idea that you know historically we've been dismissed, and you've heard this before. Social enterprise, well, yeah, it's okay in Berkeley and you know in Burlington and Austin, but the idea that this can be part of a, of, a, of a mayor's economic vision for the future. What's exciting in many of the countries, uh, in the UK, in Scotland, and particularly in Ireland, in Australia, in, in many places, there's ministers to, you know, whose job is to help nonprofits become major parts of the GNP or the GDP of any community. So I think that's what's been missing in America. So again, Cecil and I are very much on the same team here and why we've done so much good business together is, you know, we think it's, it's not just about the LA Kitchen, it's about a larger movement of which we're very much part of. Cecily, beyond the, your love of food, what made you really want to join up with Robert here in the LA Kitchen? Well, I think Robert put it perfectly when he talked about the bottomless line. I've been working with nonprofits and for-profit social enterprises for most of my career as an attorney, and I've seen people do really amazing work, and I've been really excited and jazzed to help a lot of these organizations but I could always easily see how there was so much more to do and how they could go so much further. And they were really often limited just by their own vision and by their own ideas. And so of course I meet this guy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he had been in Los Angeles, I believe, for less than a year when um, we first met up and uh, we talked about all of the different ways that we could make LA Kitchen and strong food a reality. Something that I think has been unique in our experience in working together and Robert's experience in working with me as an attorney and now as a board co-chair of the organization, I tend to approach these types of social issues and these structures from a, yeah, we can do that, we just have to figure out how we're going to do it. Rather than a lot of attorneys might say, no, you can't do that, a nonprofit can't make money. Yeah, man, that's, believe me, that's one of the reasons when I met Cecily, man, it was like polka dots and moonbees, peas and carrots, we get along. <laughs> because, you know, most lawyers will say, oh, no, you can't do that. Right. And Cecily's attitude is we'll figure it out. And it's like, and again, there's a difference between enabling and partnering, you right. know. And so what's exciting is, is Cecily pushes back. 
But the point is, we're both really here because I think we're very mission driven. You know, we want to make money, but we want to make change more. Right. Absolutely. And you know, I'm from the East Coast originally, and you're right, I do love food and I love cooking. <laughs> but I have lived in Los Angeles and on the West Coast for most of my life, and I'm really committed to Los Angeles. And to see an organization like LA Kitchen come in, and it's so embedded within the heart of the issues that we have in Los Angeles. Everything that we're doing here in LA Kitchen is really designed to meet LA where it is, and strong food is gonna help bring LA to where it can be. And so, how can you pass that up? You know, there's an old saying, LA's where the future comes to happen. And I've always been impressed, man. You know, everyone I've met here, it's a creative economy for one. So people are prone to say, yeah, cool, that sounds great, good luck. But everywhere I've turned, government, Hollywood, uh, the, the nonprofit so structure, the social enterprise world, everyone has been, you know, like, hey, man, welcome. It's really actually kind of, kind of refreshing. I've opened mm -hmm. kitchens all around the country, and oftentimes you hear, you know, you feel resistance, and I get that, you know, and I really came in here real humble. I didn't want to come in, it's like, you know, I'm here to save the day. It was like, no, man, I'm, I'm new, I want to be a player, but I, I know that as a new person, I have to find my way in it and be respectful of people who've been here for a long time. But people have really thrown open their doors. And a, a classic example, is St. Vincent Meals on Wheels. They've been doing this 30 years. And here I come trumpeting in, talking about senior meals and better meals, and they could have seen me as a real threat. Yet they opened up their doors and invited us in, and for the past year, we've done three of our training program pilots in their kitchen. So, you know, to me, that exemplifies the spirit of, like, we can do it if we work together, that I think is a, what LA is all about. Robert, you might want to talk um, some specifically about uh, engaging with older people here in LA who aren't necessarily people who would be receiving LA Kitchen meals, but who have the opportunity to come here and to prepare, to engage with others, and to, um, to serve other members of their community. Yeah, I always say there's a deeper hunger in America. People want to belong. People want to participate. They want to be part of something bigger, smarter, bolder. So I think what we're trying to do is say, look, if you're a kid who's got to do service hours, then come on down here, man. You know, we'll give you something you'll never forget. We're also saying, look, if you're over 50, 60, 70, 80, you know, you still want to rock, man, come on down here. This is it. Very interested in intergenerational. Virtually everything we're doing from the class, which is, again, older men and women home from prison, younger men and women aging out of foster care, to volunteerism, to where we choose to deliver the food. You know, we're not going to do all this work just to turn around and say, you know, who wants free food? No, 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 that's the beginning. We want to really deliberately make things happen. So whether it's dynamic experiments in the role food can play in an older person's medical regime, whether it's the idea of intergenerational after-school programs, you know, whether it's art programs, exercise programs, the point is you got to get people out, engaged, together. You know, you were talking earlier about connectivity. And I love talking about one of the most interesting things that's, that's very rarely discussed in the food movement. And, and California is at the heart of this because at the end of World War II, for the first time in the history of the world, an army came home and didn't go back to the farm. That had never ever happened because every time the war broke out, it was the sons of farmers who went off and fought, right? So suddenly you had at the end of World War II this wild combination of, of irrigation, refrigeration, transportation, and immigration that allowed California to be the, the birthplace of the industrial farm. You know, the idea of large, giant production, the idea that you could, in the middle of winter in Montana, get a lemon or a lime or a tomato or an artichoke. Never before had that happened. But to a certain extent, that's also when we left the agriculture. 
you know, this idea of what is our bond? How are we connected? What's the, what is the way in which we share a similar ecosystem? If your barn burns, I'm going to help you rebuild it because you'll come and help me if my barn burns. And this, to a certain extent, is what birthed the nonprofit sector. We became professional neighbors. We do what families did in a different era. And a little bit of what I want to re-explore is that sense of community. Hmm. You know, what does it mean to be an Angelino? You know, what does it mean? It doesn't mean I write a check and everything gets better. It means I go down to the LA kitchen and I work side by side. So you might come down here on any given day and find the mayor working next to a kid getting service hours, working next to somebody who might have been in prison for a while, next to somebody who was an addict or out on the streets. But this idea is it only works if Angelinos work side by side. And that's that's one of the big departures that we made and will continue to make as we go forward. It's really got to be a community approach. From some of our work around the world, in some cultures, the caste system is named and out there. In other cultures, it's not, but it's there. And social enterprise in so many ways, I've always thought, comes against this spoken or unspoken caste system where a mayor would stand next to somebody who they might not stand to traditionally. But you are really calling it out and creating an environment for that to happen. It's really exciting. Well, you know, sadly, in our business, traditionally in the charity business, the money's been in the disease, not the cure. And I think social enterprise is definitely on the other side of the token. But what's interesting, historically, many of the early social entrepreneurs a, they got kind of hijacked by the business school, and if I may be so bold, male culture that said you're you're only success when you go to scale. In other words, unless you're big, you're not you're not successful, which I find really numb. So this idea of, of trying to flip it around a little bit, and you'll note a lot of what I do in business, I, I want to take what, is, what does everybody think? Well, I want to go the opposite direction. Mm-hmm. And so many social enterprises are built around products that are for people who are middle class, upper middle class. And I'm interested in flipping around. How do you make social enterprise products? available for regular people or even poor people. And that's the glory of what we're doing. We're creating the same beautiful, healthy meals that you might go up in West Hollywood and spend $12 for a quinoa salad that we can make for free and serve to an old person. That's truly been part of what we've been seeing in Detroit. You know, we've seen the world calls micro, I call them garage bands because I think they're very cool. (laughs) But they're making products available to the average person. So they're taking into account their neighborhood while they're producing something of very high quality. Yeah. Let me think about it. We laugh sometimes because L.A. is the place where, you know, in so many American cities now, it's it's the $10, you know, lemon ginger ale. Uh, you know, it's the $12 coffee. And what we're interested in is the, is the $1 lemonade. You know, that's actually beautiful. I mean, again, that's the drive. Think about it. We're going to tractor trailers and stuff coming in here. So on any given day, we're going to zest, chop, dice, puree, juice, you know, everything we get. So I think the idea of, of it's almost unlimited. In fact, on the very first day, man, we were chopping up. We did 3,500 fruit parfaits for Special Olympics. And we were cutting up peaches and somebody said, you know, you can grind up peach pits and make beauty products. And it's like, wow, let's do that too. Or let's find somebody who wants to do that and give them our peach pits. But you get my idea, this, right. this idea of, of relentless bottom line. I mean, you know, why never stop dreaming and then acting? It's almost like a version of a food incubation maker environment where you're allowing some innovation to happen here to see what it could solve or create. I love those. This is really going to be fun to walk alongside you and see what happens. So my favorite question, specific to your mission, if you could, not goals, but if you could let yourself dream big about what this could be, what could this be with your truth of the moment? Influential. You know, again, I have no aspirations of big or giant. That's boring to me. You know, what I want is people to stop and to say, wow, I, I never thought about that. This changes the way I think. 
Influence, to me, is the greatest currency and the thing I seek the most. Give me an example. If I can influence a mayor to go back home and say, wow, I never thought about old people this way. I never thought about nonprofits that way. I never thought about our contracts that way. You know, and if that person is successful and then another mayor says, hey, how'd you do that? You know, all we're trying to do here is push down the first domino. That's all we do. And frankly, I always say, man, nonprofits, we can't fix anything. We really can't. It's beyond us. But if we can inspire people to see the solutions that were there all along, the ingredients that were there all along, that's really our great goal. Because I always say, man, I'm in the bravery business. And it's my job to make people brave enough, whether it's somebody, a student, brave enough to imagine another day without drugs or another day free on the streets, you know, or a volunteer brave enough to stand next to somebody they might have been afraid of if they met them on the street, or a politician brave enough to look past .com.org. That's all I do is try and just inspire people to be braver. I mean, if you really look at independence leaders, they're not really leaders. Leaders don't create followers. They create other leaders, you know, and that's the whole goal here. Thanks to Robert Egger, the founder and visionary of LA Kitchen. I also want to thank Cecily Jackson Zapata, the co-chairman of the board for the LA Kitchen and Legal Counsel. We look forward to catching up with them periodically for inspiration and how they will influence and make change through social enterprise, LA Kitchen. The Bonfires of Social Enterprise podcast can be downloaded from iTunes, listened to on TuneIn, and select episodes are now available via prx.org or the Public Radio Exchange, which is an award-winning public media company. For more information and to directly download episodes on your desktop, please visit bonfiresofsocialenterprise.com and find us on Twitter at Bonfires Podcast and Facebook, Bonfires of Social Enterprise. If you have time, please fill out the survey that we have on the website. It'll help us do what all social enterprises need to do, which is gather data from our listeners so that we can be better servants. I'm Rami, and I want to personally thank you for listening and sharing. Music by Dan Castle and Thomas Rojo. Portions of this podcast have been provided by Rami Jingress. Copywritten 2015 Jingress Global LLC and are disseminated by Flatlands Avenue Productions by exclusive arrangement with Jingress Global LLC.